Hi, I'm Rochelle, and I'm doing the Bible reading tonight. It comes from Haggai chapter 1, and it's the whole chapter. If you want to look it up as well. The title is The Call to Rebuild the Temple. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while the house, this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labour of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people began, uh, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the, the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the, the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And that is the word of the Lord. Whew. But if you think that's all you get tonight, no. we got four or five chapters to read. But before we do that, just a couple of announcements. Firstly, um, for um, those of you who are in the church directory, there's a copy of the church directory down on the side down there. In the last few weeks, we've just encouraged you to go and check your name, to make sure your photo is pretty enough, and to fix up the address and phone numbers that are there, and then to sign it on the bottom. If you haven't done that in a couple of weeks, it might even be this coming week, um, Leona is going to with take out of the directory all those who haven't looked and signed and checked. So if you haven't done that yet, please do that. The second announcement that I have is that we're doing um, another Alpha course soon. It's beginning on Wednesday evenings, uh, beginning on the 9th of October. It, the Alpha course is a great course, and we'll be advertising a little bit more in the next week or so. But please be in, in prayer for this, and maybe if, if you're 
working out ways that you might bring um, your understanding of the gospel together in a way that can be presented to your friends and your family in a way that is clear and isn't going to cause offence, then it would be good for you to do a, a course like the Alpha Course. And so on Wednesday evening, it's going to start at 7 and it'll be over by 9.30 and it goes for 10 weeks. It's also a great opportunity to invite your friends along, to invite people that you care about enough to say, I want to share the gospel with this person. I, I mightn't feel, you mightn't feel free just to do it up front with them, but you can bring them along, share a meal together, watch a presentation of, of the message of Christ and, and what um, he brings to us as his people. Um, and then just have a small group discussion around that where people without condemnation and without confrontation can just share their ideas and bring forth. So please be in prayer about that for yourselves or for other folk who you might invite along to come to the Alpha Course. Now, if you're interested in that, you want to have more information about it, see Tim um, down on the side there. He's going to be organising this Alpha Course. And so please see him if you, um, he is organising this. Uh, please feel free to have a chat with him afterwards. And um, you know, we'll have a sign-up sheet in the, in the next couple of weeks. So please be thinking and praying about that. We come now to the second of the Minor Prophets, not in order in your Bibles, but in length. Because as I mentioned beforehand, they're called minor because they don't talk for a long time. And so the first, the shortest of these was Obadiah, and we, we did that in uh, five or six sessions. Five. So Haggai is a little bit longer. Two chapters, they're both a little bit shorter, and uh, hopefully we will do this in about the same and today what we'd like to do is just to give an overview, a background to it, if you like, and a few small points we can take away from it, but really just to sit it in your mind so that as you read through Haggai over the next couple of months, we're going to have a short break next week, and I'll be preaching in the morning service as Daryl will be coming to the evening, that's kind of how we've been going back and forth, and then in about five weeks' time we'll pick up and we'll finish this series on Haggai. But just so that as you're reading through there's a, few, there's a background there to it so that you can apply this and you can begin to see and to ask the Spirit to teach you from this passage. So let's just pray and ask that he might do that for us this evening. Heavenly Father, as we come and we just look at the background to this book of Haggai, we ask that uh, you might just use the information and, and your word to get our hearts in the right place, to put our minds in the right space, that your spirit might be free to talk to us and to convince us, to convict us, to encourage us, to challenge us. That we as your people, people who love you, who, who care about your word, who want to worship you in honesty and truth, who want to be a people separate from the world, that we might listen, that we might take stock of our lives and seek to live for Jesus. Father, I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just a, a quick by the by, Haggai, how you say it? I don't know. Haggai, Haggai, that always bugs me. Um, I was listening to one Jewish guy say, and I just thought by the end of the day I'd be done with that. So just Haggai, or however it makes you feel really comfortable, that's cool. Bit of a history lesson. It really, I think for a lot of the minor prophets, you need to understand where they fit in terms of Old Testament history. When, when we read the, the Old Testament prophets, we often think they're very condemning and very judgmental. And we think, well, that's for those people who were idolaters and, 
and people who were away from God, and therefore he sent his prophet to bring them back. And what we need to do is to understand the context within it so that we can see how it applies to our life. Now, I don't know how much you remember from all of your history of the Old Testament, but if you remember, you had Saul and then David, and there was a combined kingdom with the 12 tribes. And those tribes split after Solomon into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which was mainly Judah and Benjamin. All right? Now, in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians, and they were taken off into exile. What the Assyrian leadership did at that time was they deported some people from somewhere else and plopped them in the place so that there was no one, nowhere for people to come back to. In other words, they, they shifted folk around and they put people in the place of where the Northern Kingdom was. Those people eventually ended up being the Samaritans. And their descendants actually turn up in the book of Ezra around this time of Haggai. Right, so that's 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, and a few other bits and pieces, they kept and continued on. Their kingship continued. They had a couple of good kings in that time. You had Hezekiah and Josiah. But on the whole, their, their kings were fairly wicked. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, chapter 36 and verse 15, we're going to read bits and pieces of the scripture tonight. Um, this is what, what it said about those people. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He kept hammering them, saying, you've got to come back to me, you've got to come back to me. And they kept ignoring and ignoring and ignoring. And so in 586 BC... Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, came down and invaded the, the southern kingdom and uh, took the majority of the people up into captivity of Babylon. 1 Chronicles tells a little bit more of the story. It says this, He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary. That was in the temple. So the young men who were in the temple, he killed them in the temple and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm, God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple, broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Now, they, they, because it's going to cover in Haggai, one of the things we understand is they destroyed the temple of God. They destroyed the wall around Jerusalem. And the temple was a magnificent structure. Um, I was reading this, this week um, that if you were to get all of the gold that was in the temple of Solomon and to think about it in today's value, it would cost to replace, to cover the walls as it was then covered with gold, $150 billion in today's prices to cover the walls of Solomon's temple. And that was all taken away and the temple was burnt down. And Nebuchadnezzar took these people from the southern kingdom up into Babylon. And then 
They were up there in exile. And after about 70 years, the book of Ezra tells the story of how a remnant, a group of those people, were brought back to Jerusalem because of an edict of the new superpower where Cyrus the Persian was up there, Medes and Persians. Right? Cyrus the king then, and he sent some people back to Jerusalem to build the temple. We read about this in Ezra chapter 1. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied that people would go into exile for a certain period of time, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. So this pagan, if you like, king, because of the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, makes a proclamation throughout his land where all of these southern people have been in exile for a period of 70 years. And some of them had lived that whole time of exile up there in Babylon. But they remembered Jerusalem. And this is what Cyrus said in verse 2 of Ezra 1. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Cyrus, a Persian king, said to all of the Jews who are in his land, if you want to, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild your temple. God wants me to do this and I'll let you do that. And all your friends around about you, they should give you money. You should take your stuff with you and they should give you stuff. Your neighbours, your Persian neighbours, should give you stuff so that you can go back and build your temple. We're going to read through a couple of chapters here, but I want you to begin to think about what these people are like. See, when the book of Haggai is written, which comes after this group of people have gone back to Jerusalem, it's written to these people, the people who go back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we often think when a prophet writes to people that these are people who are doing the wrong thing, who are in error. But as we're going to read, this remnant, this people who had a real concern for God's temple and God's house, they're the ones who go back. And when Haggai is written, it's to those people. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time highlighting that. Why? Because to me, that's, that's us. We love God. We want to serve him. We're prepared in many ways, as we'll see, to give up of ourselves to serve God. And in that setting, to those people, that's what Haggai is written to. That's to whom the prophet Haggai comes. Sometimes, you know, you're up here and you preach, and you think, yeah, everybody's got it. And then you walk out and someone shakes you and says, oh, I wish my friend was here. And I said, I wish you were here. It's for you. Now, as we go through the book of Haggai, and as you read it, think about what we're going to, what we come up with in a little while, the people who are God followers. In our thinking, these are the good, conservative, 
Christians. And Haggai is written to these people. And, and so whatever comes up in the book of Haggai, as we'll look at a little bit later, that's, it's aimed at people who do want to follow God. It's aimed at people who are prepared to give up of themselves to follow God. Let's just quickly go through and look at it. Verse 5 of Ezra chapter 1. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests, the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out of the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had, had them brought by Methrodath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shezbazar brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And chapter 2, which we're not going to read, tells of all these 47,000 or whatever people who come out of Babylon and head back. But the interesting thing is, these are people whose heart God had moved. These are people who were prepared to sell up the life that they'd had for the last 50 years and give it to go back to Jerusalem. One of the commentators says it's the right people, the godly people, the faithful few, the right people going into the right place. They head back to Jerusalem where they can worship their God. These are the people to whom Haggai writes. I think of us, you know, so often we, we hear the word of Scripture and we think, man, someone needs to listen to this. And Haggai's written to us. It's to those people who love God, who are prepared to give up for God, who are prepared to you know, do sacrificial stuff for God, to come to the right place to worship him, to... To, to hear him speak, to go and try and seek to be where God wants us to be. That's to whom Haggai's written. We're going to skip Ezra chapter 2 because it's about 72 verses and it just names all of those people. Now, if you really want to read Ezra chapter 42, do it late at night when you can't sleep. When the seventh month, this is Ezra chapter 3 now, when the seventh month came, so they had, the Israelites had um, come together to Jerusalem. And the Israelites had settled in their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to burn sac sacrifice, burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offering, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices of all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. 
Though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid, then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. Not only was it the right people in the right place, but they worshipped in the right way. They read the law of Moses. They understood the scriptures and they sought to follow the scriptures. This isn't people who didn't understand what God wanted. This is people who understood what God wanted, who, who sought to do what he wanted. They obeyed the law of Moses. They, they kept the law as rigorously as they could, even though they only had the altar. And even though they were just back in Judah, they sacrificed all that was required. Now, for those guys to be able to do that, that would have been sacrificial on their part. They would have just brought back stuff. They would have been like those settlers you see in Little House on the Prairie with a couple of cows going along behind the covered wagons. Right? And then to sacrifice that which God required would be very sacrificial. I can't imagine Laura doing it, to be honest. Right? Because they need the cow. But these guys know they sacrifice. And not only that, they gave more. They give their free will offerings, it says. They sacrificed. They were people who loved God, and who worshipped God according to what he wanted. Verse 8, Ezra chapter 3. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedach, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began to work. They appointed Levites 20 years old and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love endures toward Israel forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. Not only were they people who had given up, who were sacrificial, who had come and sought to, to make sacrifice to God according to the law, they worshipped him in, in that true freedom that true spirit but they did it according to how he desired to be worshipped they did it according to how david had said that they ought to not only that they they took time to minister to see that the, god's temple was built it wasn't just a show and then they walked away these guys came and they took of their time and they took of their energy and they ministered to see that god's temple was built up and when it was done when the foundations were laid they rejoiced we're on the way. We see the vision in the future. We're on the way. Some of the people who had seen the old temple wept. I think the reason is, and it'll come up in Haggai, 
that when they looked at how big it was, they realised it was a lot smaller than the old one. That it wasn't going to get close to looking like that. And that's something that comes up in the book of Haggai, that, that comparison with what was before to what is now. So some of them wept at that. But the majority of them who'd come back, who wanted to seek to follow the Lord, who'd put time and effort and energy into the things of the Lord, they just rejoiced. But they didn't rejoice without thought. We read here that they rejoiced according to the Psalms of David. They did it according to how God asked to be worshipped, how he asked to be praised. And so they did it biblically. They did it in that sense. And they were so happy in rejoicing what God was doing and what God had done and what they had done in God's service that the noise was just amazing. As with any good thing, there comes opposition. Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, if you remember, we talked about those in the northern kingdom who had been taken off into by the Assyrians, who had been disappeared. People had been plopped in their place. And these guys had come from all sorts of other places, and they had wanted a God to worship. And it seems that what they had done, and this becomes the latest Samaritans, they had said, we need to worship the God of this land. And some priests had been set and sent down to help them to understand how it is that they might worship God. But they were very syncretistic. They had taken bits and pieces of the worship of, of God from the Old Testament scriptures, and they had mixed it and mingled it with the things of the world and from their own cultures and their own back. If you like, and I'm pushing the point a little bit, they, they were the liberals. They were the secular believers. They were the people on the edges who, who said they believed, who, who wanted to have faith in their life, but, but they weren't the committed ones. They, they, weren't, they didn't want the temple built. It says they were enemies of the people. They didn't want the unification that would come with the temple. They, they wanted to continue the practices the way they had been doing it. And they knew that if the temple was built and if the walls were built around, that there would be then a focus back to doing things the way that God said they ought to be done. And so they said, let's help you. We'll come. You know, let's, we we, we want to have a hand in this. We, wanna, we don't want you just doing it your way. Um, we seek your God. We, we want to work with you on this. Let's collaborate. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Why did they say this? That sounds a bit harsh. It's like, nope, sorry, you have no part of it. But what they were doing is they were maintaining the integrity of their faith. They were saying, no, this is what the scripture says. We won't back down on that. We follow God and we're committed to following God. And therefore we aren't going to compromise with the world no matter how nice it sounds and how pretty it is we're not going to do that we're going to maintain faithfully according to what God has taught and therefore no we'll do it we'll serve the Lord we'll do it according to the scriptures 
Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what did they do? They bribed officials. Can you make those things go away? They undid the bolts on the wheels of the wagons. They set little fires. They put water where it wasn't supposed to be to make the cement all runny. They did whatever they could to mix it all up. And yet the people persisted. The end of chapter 4. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Bishlam, Mithradeth, Tabiel, and the rest of his associates wrote a letter to Artaxerxes. The letter was in Aramaic script and in the Aramaic language. Reham, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. He, and they said this. <coughs> Raham, the commanding officer, and Shimshay, the secretary, together with the rest of their associates, the judges, officials, administrators of the people of Persia, Uruk, and Babylonia, the Elamites of Susa, and the other people whom the great and honourable Ashurbanipal deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates, this is what they wrote. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants in Trans-Euphrates, the king should know that the people who come up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're restoring the walls and repairing their foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That's why the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you'll be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. King, people, secular folk, we want you to know that if Christians are allowed to do their thing, if the followers of God are allowed to do their thing, it'll disrupt society. It's actually against the way that culture runs. And the word gets out. And Artaxerxes listens to them, and he writes them a letter back. He says to Rehum, the commanding officer, Shishimshay, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in Trans-Euphrates, greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. And I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings, and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of Trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work, so that the city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of his royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehem and Shimshay, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the second year of Darius, king of Persia, God sent the prophet Haggai to these people. Committed people. People who 
loved the Lord who sacrificially gave to God, who worshipped him in accordance with the scriptures, with their whole hearts. People who were prepared not to compromise themselves with the world. People who were oppressed by the world for standing firm for God. But people who had been bowed down under just the insensitivity of their neighbours and, and the decrees that were going on around and who had been forced under suffering of violence to stop work. And we get the prophecy of Haggai. Haggai says four messages to the people who are there. And if, if you like, in some ways, if you want to summarise the message that he says to these people, people who are tired, but people who love God, people who want to follow him, but for one reason or another have stopped with the passion and the work that they did when they were younger. Now, some of you are still younger. <laughs> But I know some of us who are older, if we think back to our youth, the passion that was there, the hard work, the sacrifice that we would give. But it slows down. We get tired, the persecution. I think of even some of you who I know are younger. You know, when I was here three years ago, poor man, you were passionate. You just toned it down a little bit. We get tired, we get worn out, there's oppression coming from outside. Things are happening. And Haggai writes, and all the way through, he says this to them. He says, guys, give careful thought to your ways. Think, think about how you're responding. Think about how you're living your life. Think about some of the evidences that are there in your life as to whether or not you're really following like you used to where your heart really is, what your promises are. And he has four messages. And really the chapter one which we read, he's, he's kind of saying, you know, guys, check your priorities. Yes, it's been difficult. 15 years have passed. 16 years have passed since way back when they started. But because of everything, they've slowed down, they stopped. Nothing's been done since that foundation was there. They're tired. They're old. They've got their families to look after. You read through chapter 1. They, they need to get their house in order, their fields, their vineyards. They want to prosper. They're living in this place. And, and they, want to, they want to have a family that works, that grows. They want to be able to succeed. And Haggai says, some guys, have a careful look. Have a careful thought to your ways. Check your priorities. God wants to be first in your life. He, he, and as you read through chapter 1, the people give all sorts of excuses. Excuses that I hear, excuses that I make at times as to why you can't do it. You know, I'm busy. You know how difficult my work is? You know how much I have to do just to get ahead? You know how much mortgages cost these days? Ministry? I'm sorry. I'd love to help, and I know I've got the gifts, and I know I've got the skills, and I, I love the Lord, and these guys truly did. This, this is why I think it's so applicable to us. They really did love God. But I'm busy. I've got a family. I've got 
Three kids and a fourth on the way. I got a house, a mortgage. These are not excuses. I'm not aiming this at anybody. Please note that. That was just fun. I couldn't help myself. You know, I, I don't think I can put in what I used to do. Right? Uni studies. You don't know the exams, the assignments that I've got. It's really busy at this time, so yes, I'm going to have to take a step back from doing the things of the Lord. I love him very much, but to be honest, that's just where life's at at the moment. You've got to understand God. And, and he says, sorry, check your priorities. And if you read through the end of chapter 1, he says, why do you think you're just going round and round in circles? Why is it that you've just... It's because I'm not in it. He says, you, you work and you work to put money in the bag and the bag's got a hole in the bottom of it. Don't you understand I need to be in it? I, for success, I need to be there. I need to be your number one. Check, think about your ways. And if you remember back what we read from uh, the end of Chronicles, the people pushed away the, the prophets of God and they didn't listen. But at the end of chapter 1, if you read it, all the people came together and the Spirit of God moved within them and they listened and obeyed. And I suppose that's what I'm going to encourage as we go through the rest of Haggai and as you read it. Hear what the word of the Lord says. These people who wanted to know him, when the Spirit of God spoke to them, they responded in, in a way that those who were walking in evil did not respond. God's not saying these people are, are walking in evil. He's saying what's happened is your life has become not focused, number one, on me, your priority get back to it. We'll look at that when we get chapter 1. That's his first message. For those of you who are interested, it was given on the August the 29th, 520 BC. All right? He gave that message on a particular day. A festival. The festival of the new moon. The harvest festival. Just for your interest, Haggai's name means festival. So most of his speeches are actually given on particular festivals. It's kind of cute. Haggai chapter 2, he gives his second message on October the 17th of the same year, 520 BC. And he's going to be talking to the people in this one about where they set their, their benchmarks. You see, in this part of the chapter, the people of Israel, they're comparing their little tiny temple that they're building with the really big one of Solomon and they're whining about it. They're saying, you know, it's not as good as those other people's. Our church isn't growing as fast as their church is growing. We don't have as many small groups. Our pastors aren't as cute. Whatever. And they're making this comparison. Why, how can we keep working when, when the results aren't what they should be, when they're not what we expect, when we're not going? That they set these benchmarks for their ministry levels and for how much they can do and how much should be success. And Haggai says, hold on a second, what God says is he's the one who brings the glory. He says to the people in this passage, don't make your benchmark for your life success or not, your family and other things, but even in your relationship with me, don't make your benchmark that you're there every Sunday. Don't make your benchmark that you go to life group or home group once a week. Don't make your benchmark something where you're comparing yourself with other folk. 
Your benchmark, he says in his second speech, is God's presence with you. Is God walking with you? If he is, you're a success. If he's not, you're not. And he says again, give careful thoughts to your ways. And I'll say it to you now, and I hope as you read through Haggai, you'll be thinking this through for yourself. Am I walking with God? Is, is he in my life? Is he the one who's guiding me? Whatever else I put as my values, my relationship with the people around me, the growth of the church or otherwise, my ministries, is my life having God's presence with me as the benchmark of success? If it is, then Haggai says that's the way to go. And he does it in this whole discussion with the temple. And then two months later, on December the 18th, he gives two speeches, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. I'm imagining it's a Sabbath, so he's got morning service and evening service, but I don't really know. He might have just done it one speech after the other. But on the 24th day of the ninth month, the word of the Lord came to him again. And in this one, he's talking about defilement. And basically he says you can't catch holiness from touching holy things, but you can touch sin. Sin's contagious. And basically as he talks through to the people, he's saying, what's your motivation in life? What's your motivation? And it deals with things like God's calling and, and God's provision and how God cleans us and makes us clean. If, if you like, the discussion here is their, their focus on everything had got down to I need to do. If I go through this set of steps, I'm acceptable. These people who love God had fallen into the trap of a works-based theology, if you like. They would never say that because they were good evangelicals. And the Reformation had sunk deep into their soul. But in practice, they went through the motions of Christian living or Old Testament living in that state. I'm applying it here for us. They went through the motions of Christian living and they said, this makes me okay. I compare myself with the people around me and I'm doing more than they are. I come twice on Sunday. I'm faithful. I'm okay. And in many ways they were. They loved God. They wanted to worship him. They sought after him. But the, their motivation just got out of whack. And he says, don't you understand that your cleansing, your holiness comes from your relationship with me? Don't you understand that I'm the one who called you out of the world and therefore everything that has to do with, with your relationship with me is, is focused on me bringing you out and bringing you into my presence? And I will provide for you. And in his second message on that day, he gives this great promise of this new king who's coming. And we look forward to that in terms of the person of Christ. Now, that's a fair bit of background <laughs> to the book of Haggai, and it's a bit of an overview of it. But I would encourage you in the next few weeks to read the book. But not only that, to consider your ways, to take your life as people who love God, who follow him, who in many ways are sacrificial of your time, who have known him for a period and would serve him and do serve him, You've had experience in your life where you've just walked very closely with him. Consider your ways. Think again. What, what are my priorities? Have, have I adopted the priorities of the world, of 
growing my home, enjoying my retirement, getting a great education, none of which in and of themselves are wrong. But do they become your priorities so that the work that God wants you to do and that needs to get done, that he's gifted you to do, doesn't happen? And he's saying, think about this. Not, not for any other reason than that you take stock of your life and say, am I really have God as my priority? Well, what, are, what are my benchmarks for success? What are my benchmarks for success of the church? What are my be- personal benchmarks for success? Is it the fact that I can wake up every morning and know that I'm walking through the day with, with Jesus? Is that my benchmark? Think about it. Consider it. Ponder upon it. Because God promises that as we walk with him, that is sufficient for us. And that even though it looks to everyone else around that we're failing, if we're walking with him, we have such greater success. And when we get to it, we'll read through it. He actually says, you think Solomon's was great? You think that was good? I'm going to come and live with you and that's going to be so much better. 150 billion bucks worth of gold, do you think that compares at all to my glory dwelling amongst you? Get real. And then I, again, I challenge you, ponder. Ponder the things we do. Are we falling into that trap of, I do this and therefore? Or are we walking and saying, okay, Christ cleanses me. Christ calls me. Christ will provision everything I need. And I, I serve not to gain anything, but in just an acknowledgement that he's already given me everything. And it's written to people who are faithful. One of the only prophetic books, although Zechariah, which is one of the other post-exile books, post-exilic books. So there's three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And again, it's written to this group of people. And we need to read it in that light. So I encourage you to do that. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Haggai. And I pray that over the next month or so that each of us might read through it time and time again. But more than that, Father, I pray that we as your people who love you, who care for you, who want to worship you, who want to follow your law, who want to observe all that you require of us, that we will examine our hearts, we will examine our motivations, we will examine our priorities, we will examine just what we're doing. Father, help us not to give excuses for why we can't, but help us to walk each day in your presence and that we might find, as your people have found throughout all history, that knowing you is sufficient for all things. Father, we ask these things and we pray them in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.